Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1? And if you are new with us, welcome. We have begun a study in the book of Romans. Currently, we are in the introduction, which covers verses 1 to 7. And uh, as we have said, this is the longest, by far, the longest introduction of all of Paul's epistles. It's almost like he was so excited to write this epistle, he just shoves all the theology in the first seven verses and then takes the rest of the book to kind of expound on it. Uh, that's what we've been taking our time looking at these, this introduction. Let me just start with verse 1. Paul, a bond slave, not bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, not called to be, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just... Uh, start by saying uh, you see how paul talks about those believers in rome he calls them beloved of god the greek is literally god's loved ones god's loved ones you know as i was thinking about this today going over these things i i th thought we needed to just talk briefly do you believe that god loves you now, I mean, do you really believe he loves you no matter what? We often struggle with that truth. I mean, we accept it by faith and in principle, but often struggle with it in practice, in the everyday practical matters of our lives. Look, I don't believe I'm overstating this. You can be a great theologian. You can be a tireless missionary. You can be a faithful Christian servant. But if you doubt that God loves you unconditionally, you will never be all he wants you to be, nor will you enjoy all that he has for you as his child. You will always be held back by the devil. He will always be holding you back. Look, the devil knows this very, he knows this very well. And that's why he constantly attacks us in this regard. He constantly tries to sow doubt in our hearts uh, as to God loving us, uh, usually using our circumstances. If our circumstances are very negative, we're going through a very severe uh, time of sickness or so somebody we love very dearly has died, um, the devil will use that to try to get us to doubt God's love. Is God really a loving, all-loving God? Does he really love me? Because if he did, I can't imagine why he would let me go through this. Guys, I believe much, if not most, of the spiritual warfare we face is all about Satan trying to get us to doubt God's, God's love for us. Here's, here's what I mean. If he can get you to doubt that God loves you, that maybe God is holding something against you when you fail, that, you know, because things are right now very tough, that God is demonstrating he doesn't really care for me the way the Bible says he cares. That's, if I buy into that, it's going to breed resentment. 
And the longer it foments in my heart, the more it causes resentment, the more that it's going to move into um, where I am um, angry at God. Because he's not really forgiving me, loving me, helping me, whatever it might be. And that causes resentment, and the resentment builds to flat-out uh, hatred. Remember when Absalom, David's son, raped his half-sister, who was Absalom's full sister. I'm sorry, I, I messed the story up. Absalom had a full sister, T Tamar, I think was her name. And her half-brother, was it Amnon? I'm doing this from memory. Seduced her, and like, he made her think that he was sick and needed her to attend him. And David said, well, fine, that, that's fine. If you're sick, your sister can take care of you. And when he got her alone, he raped her. She eventually told Absalom about this. Absalom waited a couple of years and threw a party for all of his brothers and sisters. And during this party, he killed Amnon. And then he fled. He was gone for like, I don't know, three years or something like that, living with his grandfather. And finally, you can read the story yourself. Finally, uh, Joab convinces David to bring Absalom home. But you remember the story. When he brought Absalom home, he wouldn't see him. He wouldn't meet with him. He, he, he let him come back to the kingdom, let him stay in his own house as he once had. But David was punishing him. David was upset. David was hurt. Uh, and so David would not extend full forgiveness to Absalom. And that caused Absalom to begin to resent his father. And after a while, that resentment built, uh, built and built until finally he hated his father. And he went and tried to overthrow his dad. This is a dangerous thing. And if, we, if the devil gets us to buy into how God, uh, yeah, he puts up with me. He might like me, but he, he won't really forgive me for what I've done or this or that. It's going to cause resentment, eventually hatred, and eventually I'm going to turn against God. This is why I believe that spiritual warfare, I think most of the time, is a battle to get you to doubt. We know it takes place in your thinking. That's why the Bible says once you get saved, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, the devil's been brainwashing us our whole lives with anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christian doctrines. But even after you get saved, the devil still is attacking your thinking. That's what spiritual warfare, the battleground where most spiritual warfare takes place, in your mind for control of your thoughts. If Satan can control how you think, he can control how you live. And if he can get you to buy into the lie that God is holding these against you, he doesn't love you unconditionally, he can slowly turn your heart away from God, and then who knows what will happen. I can't tell you how many people I've known over the years that have turned against God because a loved one died, a mom passed away, they were praying and, and all, and, 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 and trusting God, and, and she died, or a child passed and people have turned away from God because if God really loved me, he would not have let this happen. Let me just say this to you. I cannot climb into your heads and force you to accept what the Bible says about God's love. Either you're going to believe it or you're not going to believe it. It's as simple as that. But if you ever doubt God's love for you, 
may I recommend all you need to do is turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul said, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If God loved us that much before we even knew him that he would die for us, how much more now that we are his children will he love us? And so on. Now, Paul mentions here in verse 7 grace. Um, he says, Grace to you. Uh, understand this is not the grace that saves, because Paul's readers were already saved. But this is the grace, listen, that equips and empowers for Christian living and for Christian service. Peter mentions this kind of grace, 2 Peter 3, verse 18 where he said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look, saving grace, you don't grow into saving grace. It's available for you to believe. You can believe or not believe in Jesus based on God's grace. It's available. But it's, you don't grow into saving grace. But once you're saved, you grow into sanctifying grace. Then we need grace to give us the ability to live for our Savior, to be a light, uh, to bear fruit, all of that. We, we, we grow um, in that kind of grace because we grow up in Christ. The peace Paul mentions here is not peace with God. The saints already had this kind of peace because they were already justified by faith they were saved again Romans 5 but this time verse 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ that's not the kind of peace he was talking about here in verse 7 of Romans 1 I mean we know that peace with God comes when we receive Christ and we are now our sins are washed uh, away and we are now children of God we're not at enmity with him anymore and he's now at enmity with us uh, now we are born of the spirit we belong to God and so we have peace with God. the war is over we've laid our weapons down our rebellion uh, our sin right and uh, now we are God's children but the grace that Paul is talking about here is the grace excuse me the peace I should say uh, Paul is talking about here in verse 7 is the supernatural peace of God. Supernatural peace of God. Philippians 4, 7. The kind of peace that reigns in our hearts when we stay close to God, when we keep our eyes on God, when we abide in Christ. Uh, it's a practical peace that we, we walk in when we are close to God, walking in the Spirit, that kind of thing. When you walk away from God, which the devil wants you to do every day, you begin to lose touch with God's attributes. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, you can, you know, Galatians 5, 22 and 3, those are really just the attributes of God. Peter said once we get saved, we become partakers of God's divine nature, right? 2 Peter 1, 4. That means you're connected to God. His nature is in you now. And God's nature produces love, joy, peace, and all the fruits of the Spirit, which are really the attributes of God. We, people can, can fake it. They can fake love. They can fake peace. But 
they cannot really duplicate God's peace. You have to be a child of God, born again, filled with the Spirit, for the attributes of God to begin to work their way into your life. Uh, if you're walking in the Spirit, peace is one of those attributes. And it surpasses human understanding, Paul says in Philippians. This peace is incredible. It goes beyond anything human beings can manufacture on their own. It's supernatural. And that's the kind of peace we need when we go through tribulations, sufferings. The, the church in Rome was being persecuted. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute, right? So we need God's grace. We need God's peace. Now, this grace and peace, Paul says, came from God our Father. Let me stop there just for a second. The greatest privilege we have as believers is to be able to call God our Father. Now, some would say, well, what's so big about that? We're all the children of God. No, we're not. The universal fatherhood of God is unbiblical. Unbiblical. Look, all people are the creation of God. But not all people are universally the children of God. In Romans 8, verse 15, we read, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Look, we cannot call God Father until we have first received Jesus into our heart. When a person does that, when they receive Jesus as their Savior, they are, yes, born of the Spirit, but they are also born into the family of God. They become the children of God. And the Bible repeats, people say, well, how do I really know if I'm a child of God? Well, have you accepted Christ into your heart? Yeah, but I'm not sure. Maybe I really didn't. Okay, all right. Hey, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's, that's a good thing. Oftentimes, people that are so convinced, I mean, look, if you've been a Christian for you know, 10, 15 years, you should be convinced if you're a child of God or not by now. But there's a lot of folks that are so arrogant about it. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Me and the big guy, we're good. Really? Well, yeah, I was baptized, and uh, I light a candle here and there, and I'm good. Well, you know, the Bible never says the evidence of you really being a child of God is by how many candles you light. The Bible holds up over and over again. Obedience to God is the evidence a person is really has really been born into the family of God. Of course, Jesus was talking about uh, good trees and bad trees in Matthew 7. And he said, look, a bad tree can't bear good fruit, neither can a good tree bear bad fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Look, once you're saved, the Spirit moves in. And again, the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow, which are just the attributes of God. That's an evidence that God lives inside of you. And one of the things that really begins to show is you begin to be transformed from the inside out. First in the area of your attitudes. And then it works its way out in the way you live your life, right? Now, Paul said to a young pastor named Titus in chapter uh, Titus 1, verse 16, there are many who profess to know God. They claim they're Christians. But in works or by their lives, they deny Him. Look, as Christians, we're not going to live perfect lives. Uh, we, we all know that. But John said in his first epistle, chapter 3, here's how you know the children of God from the children of the devil. 
The children of God practice righteousness. The children of the devil practice unrighteousness or lawlessness. Sure, a Christian is going to still sin here and there. But the general pattern of our life is that we practice. That's the key word. We live habitually with righteous thinking and righteous living, although we still blow it once in a while. A child of the devil may go to church, may light a candle here and there, but the general pattern of their life will be they will think unrighteous thoughts and basically they will live habitually unrighteous lives. The idea is that when the Spirit of God moves in, He begins to transform you from the inside out. Paul said in Romans 8, verse 14, for as, many are, as, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons, the children of God. Hey, guys, before I got saved, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I loved uh, the church. I loved going to church. I didn't do it all the time, but I, had, I went to Catholic grade school. My wife went to Catholic high school. And back in those days, you know, we loved the Catholic Church. We didn't know anything else. And I loved to be, uh, you know, in the presence of God when I went to Mass. Um, because that's, I, I just felt like that's, that was what being a Christian in God's presence was all about. I just enjoy His presence and, and, and so on. I just felt good when I, when I came out of, uh, out of church. But my life was definitely not being led by God. I went to church here and there. When I got older, I, I started going, we went back to uh, church because God was tugging at our hearts. And we just felt like, hey, you know, we're married now and, uh, and we're adults. You know, and you get married, you know, you're officially adults. And, and I remember thinking this. And honey, as adults, adults go to church. We need to go back to church. So we did. But I have to tell you that all week long, I wasn't looking to God to lead my life. I wasn't praying about God's will for my life. I did what I thought I wanted to do. I just, whatever I wanted to do. Uh, you know, but it wasn't until I gave my heart to Jesus Christ that everything changed. And I noticed it right away because the Holy Spirit began to tell me I couldn't do certain things anymore. Now, all God had to do was tell me that dishonors me. That does not please me. That's all I needed to hear. And I wanted to please the Lord. And much of it was just innate at that point. I didn't want to party. I didn't want to get drunk. I didn't want to take drugs. I didn't want to sleep around. That It was just almost you know, immediately like an innate, innate knowledge of what I, I just, I had no heart to do it, what I used to do. You know, have you ever gotten that from your friends after you get saved and and, and all of a sudden, after a, a week or two or three, they say to you, what's different about you? Uh-oh. I've been made. What's, what's different about you? Something's different. They're, they're picking up on that. They see it. It comes through in the way you are talking and living now. Paul says, we receive grace and peace from, our, from God our Father, and listen, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, by this statement, Paul is strongly implying the equality of the Son with the Father, which, by the way, was the theme of John's entire gospel, which we are about ready to finish on Sunday morning. John sums up his entire gospel with these theme verses in chapter 20, verses 30, uh, verses 30 and 31, 
Many other miracles did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples. But these I have chosen, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah and Savior, and that by believing you might have life in his name. All throughout John's Gospel, John is lifting up things that happened in Jesus' ministry that confirm his theme to prove that Jesus Christ was not just any religious teacher come down the pike of human history. He was unique. He was different. And people around him picked up on that because of the way he taught and lived. Turn to John 5 for a minute. So Jesus went around healing and doing good works on the Sabbath. And this really infuriated the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and leaders of Israel. So John 5, verse 17, you know, they, they, they you know, what are you doing? Working on the Sabbath, right? And he said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Skeptics said, well, he never really claimed to be God. They're just misinterpreting. Okay, turn to John 10. And here we read in verse 31, you can always tell when something significant has just happened. When I, what I mean by that is, when Jesus has just said something very significant that we might miss, the Holy Spirit draws our attention to it because the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. You say, oh, wow, they're picking up stones again. What did he just say? Because it's really important. I understand what's going on here, right? So again, they pick up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now listen, there are those again who say Jesus never claimed to be God. That is absolutely ridiculous. He didn't just say it once. It was the hallmark of his ministry. Everywhere he went, and in fact the Greek is um, in John 5.18 um, not only did he break the Sabbath, but he said God was his father, making himself equal with God. The Greek is he went around constantly saying that God was his, was his father. He went around constantly claiming equality with God. And so anyone who says he didn't really claim to be God, sometimes the cults will hit you with that. It's like, that's ridiculous. That's all he ever did was claim equality with the father that he was God in human form. And look, there is no misunderstanding uh, on their part. His enemies were often uh, more honest than uh, some of his followers. They knew what he was claiming, but just so they and everyone else didn't doubt at all, um, this was something he affirmed in the strongest possible way, his divinity. Look at John 8 real quick, verse 24. Now he's got he's getting into a the thing with the Pharisees has come to a a breaking point. Chapter 8 they go after him and he goes after them. And he said to them in verse 24, John 8, therefore I said to you 
that you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that what i am the he is in italics the translators thought it might help us uh, to understand the verse better. It, here it messes us up. Take the he out. For if you do not believe that I am, folks, that's the name of God, the great I am. If you don't believe I am, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am Jehovah God in human form, that is a non, uh, that is an essential doctrine, non-negotiable. Anybody who does not believe Jesus Christ is not a God, but the almighty Jehovah God. If they don't believe he's Jehovah God, they will die in their sins. You cannot be saved. If you don't believe Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead bodily. Those are two essential doctrines for salvation. Right? Paul said it in Romans, what? Uh, 10 verse 9. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, God Almighty, and believe in your, and confess to your mouth that he rose from the dead, you shall be saved. Look, if Jesus were only a man, it would be absurd to list him as equal with the Father in bestowing grace and peace. Think about that. Think about that. I mean, look, how would it sound if we put it this way? Uh, it would be like saying, uh, grace and peace from God the Father and from Abraham Lincoln. doesn't fit, does it? Or, grace and peace from God the Father and from Billy Graham. Good guy, you know. God forbid, grace and peace from God the Father and Phil Ballmeyer, but you get the point. <laughs> now, look, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but we have folks watching online, and I don't know where they are with the Lord, so I want to be clear, Okay. We know, as believers, that Jesus Christ is the only man ever born that was fully God and at the same time fully man. Again, the theologians call it the hypostolic union, the, 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 the combining, the, the merging of divinity, divine nature, and human nature. Not 50% God and 50% man, 100% God, 100% man. It's a miracle. We don't understand it. Someday I think we will but we'd have to be in God's presence when he gives us the ability to understand some of these deeper things of God. Right now, we're doing our best. Okay, we're doing our best. It's kind of like a toddler in a nuclear uh, facility trying to understand how this nuclear generator works or whatever, right? Uh, we're fumbling around. We're trying to do our best because God's so far above us, you know. He's infinite. we got these little ant brains that we're trying to... You know, it's like somebody said one time, you know, it's like uh, all the oceans of the world uh, are, are God, the knowledge of God. And here I come with my little thimble brain and dip, try to pour all the oceans of the world into a thimble. It's going to be a, bound to be a lot of spillage. Right? I mean, so we're doing the best we can. God knows that. God knows that. But um, this we do know, that God became man and dwelt among us uh, that makes jesus unique from all other people who have ever lived and guys this is a truth that is not lost on all unbelievers either there's a lot of unbelievers who will acknowledge that jesus christ is unique i mean emerson said the name of jesus christ is not so much written as it is plowed into the soul of the history of the world 
Well, until recently, we used to we used to base our calendar on Jesus Christ. It was either B.C. before Christ or A.D. Anno Domino, which was in the year of our Lord. Now they're trying to get around it by saying B.C.E. before Christian era, and so on. You go to Israel and they do that, okay? They don't acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, let alone God, okay? But you, you've all heard the poem, One Solitary Life, right? I did a little research and discovered that the gentleman who wrote that poem was a pastor. So he, wasn't a, a belie- uh, he was not an unbeliever, but it was written for the unbeliever to challenge them to think a little about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. You probably read it many times. It goes like this, and I quote, Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a, car- in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life." End quote. He's unique. And, if, and any honest thinking person who is not filled with prejudice, with some anti-Christ agenda, any person who is willing to look at the evidence honestly, the life of Christ honestly, has to admit I mean, they may not receive him as Savior, but he was definitely unique. Now, starting with verse 8, we move from the head to the heart of Paul. In the first seven verses of the epistle to the Romans, we have the opening salutation where Paul briefly introduces himself before presenting the theme of this letter, which, as we said numerous times, is the gospel, or in other words, the good news of God. The content of the first seven verses, guys, is doctrinal. Doctrinal. Starting in verse 8 and running through verse 17, we move from the doctrinal to the personal, as Paul is sharing his heartfelt desire to see these Christians for the first time and to share their mutual love for each other. So here in these verses, Paul bears his heart. He allows this group of people whom he has never met to get a glimpse at who he, the Apostle Paul, we call him the great Apostle Paul, Paul didn't see himself like that. He was a humble man. But he's letting these people who 
he has never met get a glimpse at who he really is on the inside. So verse 8, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The first thing Paul reveals about himself is that he is thankful. Not just for these folks, which he was, but as I read Paul's writings, you get the clear impression that Paul was a man who was thankful for everything in his life. Even the adversity, even the suffering. He would go on to say to the Thessalonians, in everything give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Not just for the good stuff, not just when you're happy and things are working out the way you want. All things, Paul would say to the Romans, uh, are working according to the plan of God for those who are the called. So if everything is working according to God's will for our lives, then we should be thankful for everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, whatever comes our way that is not self-induced, but even if we do sin and reap consequences, if we confess it to God, throw ourselves on his mercy, he will even take our sins and turn them around and use them somehow for good, like he did Peter, who denied the Lord three times, crushed Peter, he was a broken man, and God used it to make Peter a better man in Christ, because now he wasn't relying on his own strength. Well, these deny you, I will never deny you, I'm stronger than... You know, and, and, no. God can't use a man or woman who is putting that much confidence in their flesh. So sometimes we, God will use our faults and weaknesses to break us, ultimately to build us, right? So Paul was thankful to God for these brothers and sisters in Rome and for their faith, which was being spoken throughout the whole world. You know, so many Christians are only thankful for other Christians who belong to their particular denomination or religious affiliation. And then they tend to hate everybody who's not of their group. You know, Pharisees did this, you know. The Pharisees only loved other Pharisees. And even then, it was a stretch. They were filled with pride. But this, this was the Pharisees' attitude. They loved other Pharisees. That's why they asked when Jesus said, you know, you, you, you love your neighbor as yourself. They said, well, who's my neighbor? See, you know, don't tell me I got to love my real neighbors, because they, what they were looking for Jesus to say was, well, you know, your neighbor is your other fellow Pharisees, because that's how they felt. And Jesus told that story about the Samaritan. You know, the, 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 the priest walking down the road to Jericho got ambushed. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm messing my stories up tonight. No, uh, a, um, a Jewish person got beat up, robbed, left for dead on the road. A priest comes walking by, see the religious guy, Jewish priest, sees the guy laying there, I'm not getting involved, passes on the other side and goes his way. Then a Levite comes, another religious person, right? They should be the heroes of the story because in their minds they were the best people in the world. Sees the guy lying there, walks on the other side of the road. And then a, then a Samaritan came. Now, Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people, especially by the Pharisees and scribes. They were half-breeds. They were outcasts. To make a Samaritan the hero, hero of the story, wow, that had to rub the wrong way. 
A Samaritan comes, sees the guy lying there, a Jew lying there, bends down, binds up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, puts him on his donkey, brings him to the innkeeper and says, look, here is some money, uh, take care of him, whatever you spend above, above and beyond what I've given you, when I come back, I will pay you what I owe you. Jesus said to the Pharisees who wanted to know who their neighbor was, he said, who do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And they said, well, I guess we, it would be the one who showed him compassion. That's exactly right. Who is your neighbor? Anyone who has a need. How do you meet that need? You love them and supply what they need. Anybody. Now, here's the thing. Well, let me just say this. Paul was thankful to God for everyone who professed faith in Christ. He had been a Pharisee, interestingly, but he no longer acted like a Pharisee because, of course, he was not the same man. Can I just tell you one thing? One of the ways you know you're growing as a Christian is this. Now, I'm talking to me more than any of you. One of the ways you know you're growing as a Christian is this. You love to argue doctrine less and love the body of Christ more. When I was a young man, a young pastor just became a Calvary pastor. Oh boy, did I think we were the, wow, cream of the crop. Certainly God loved other people in the body of Christ, but not like he loved us. And I was right there ahead of the list. And I just really had a lot of pride. And I looked down on a lot of folks who belonged to denominations because I just felt they were formal and kind of dead and rigid and the spirit was not there. This was in my heart. I may not have verbalized that, but that was in my heart. And I used to love to argue doctrine. Oh my goodness, did I love, I was so smart. Nobody could stand up to my brilliance. I remember one time, I've told you the story. We had a guy in the church who had a cousin. And she was being visited by Jehovah's Witnesses. And she was confused because she had professed faith in Christ. And so she wanted to know if I and this other, her cousin, would sit in her house when the Jehovah's Witnesses came over so we could talk. Now, we didn't ambush them. We told them this was going to happen. So I studied. For all, all week I studied. Jehovah's Witness doctrine. I had it down cold. And when the day came, we all sat down, and everything this JW came up with, I was right there with an answer. I was shooting this dude down one thing after another. Boy, did I feel good about myself. Nobody's as smart as me. Wow, I really got this nailed, right? And I remember leaving that uh, meeting uh, feeling very smug, arrogant. I had won the debate. You've all had it where God speaks to your heart very clearly. I mean, it's not audible, but it's kind of close. And the Lord said to me very clearly, Phil, you won the argument but you lost the opportunity. And I know exactly what he was saying. It wasn't about me showing how smart I was. 
It wasn't about me putting down people who didn't understand the Bible like I did. It was about humbling myself to help them to see what God graciously caused me to see. It changed me. I never again approached things like that. I'm not saying I never was arrogant again or prideful, but it really was a turning point in my young life for the Lord. Um, I just know one thing is I have grown in my faith. I like to think I've grown up. I've matured somewhat. As I look around the body of Christ now, I see Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and others who love the Lord. Roman Catholics, I bet, saved Roman Catholics. And I have just come to realize that, you know, the body of Christ is bigger than Calvary Chapel. And some of these people love God so much. Would to God I could love the Lord like they do. And that just really, I just believe that that is, has happened because, you know, you grow in Christ. You grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I like to think I've grown a little. I know one thing. I don't, I don't, I don't ever argue doctrine anymore. I will answer doctrinal questions. Somebody, if somebody is wrestling, they don't understand. I'll spend all afternoon with them. I will never again argue doctrine with somebody i don't have the time i don't have the patience too many people are dying and going to hell i'm not going to argue about non-essential doctrine with somebody that's all they want to do is argue doctrine Amen. find a coffee shop get a few people around you and argue yourself to your little heart's content i'm not going to be with you all right that's enough on that um he said your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world when Paul said that, it was his way of saying the whole known world, of which Rome was the capital. Listen, when Rome ascended to power, it made sure that all roads led to Rome, which guaranteed that Rome would be the center of commerce, trade, and tourism in the world. But another unintended consequence was that it opened the way for the free flow of information. You see, if all roads led to Rome, it also meant that all roads led from Rome as well. And that allowed the testimony and faith of the Christians living in Rome to spread like wildfire throughout the known world. Let me give you a brief historical background, uh, and then we'll close, but let me give you a brief historical background so that you appreciate the first century Greco-Roman world that God ordained set it up so the good news of God could spread throughout the known world of that day, launching Christianity. I want to start by just reading you what Paul said in Galatians 4, verse 4. You don't really have to turn to it. You, you all know, remember this, Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time, that's the word I want you to underline, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, a virgin. Guys, in the Greek language, there are two words for time. First of all, there is the word kairos, which means opportune time. It speaks of seizing an opportunity when it comes your way. 
an opportunity that often comes out of the blue without any planning on your part. And there's another Greek word for time, chronos, from which uh, we get the word chronology, which is the orderly progression of events, or in other words, when everything follows the proper sequence and is exactly right. The word used in Galatians 4, verse 4 is chronos, indicating that God didn't just decide on the spur of the moment to take advantage of an opportune time to launch the gospel, but rather God orchestrated the sequence of events, and when the time was just right, he sent his only begotten son into the world. You say, well, in what way was the timing right? Well, first of all, it was, it was the right time politically. Politically. In the first century, the Roman Empire was at its zenith of power and glory. Rome had given the world good roads, a relatively fair system of government, and most important, it had given the world peace, the famous Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace. For the first time in history, people could travel with relative uh, ease almost anywhere in the empire, which meant those early Christians could carry the message of the gospel all over the known world. So it was the right time politically, but it was also the right time culturally. What do I mean? Well, Alexander the Great had conquered the world three centuries earlier. And when he conquered the world, the known world, he Hellenized it, which means he imposed Greek culture and philosophy and especially Greek language on all the areas that they had conquered. That's what Hellenized means. You, you make them Grecian. You impose upon these regions, you know, Greek culture and philosophy and language, right? The influence of Greek culture and language was so powerful and it was God, no doubt about it. But the influence of Greek culture and language was so powerful that even after uh, the Romans conquered the world, people still spoke Greek. Greek was the most precise and descriptive of all the ancient languages. If you're God, maybe I shouldn't even put it that way, thinking like God thought on this subject, you want to communicate doctrine truth but you want to use a language that is so precise that there's going to be as little grounds for confusion as possible some languages are, are kind of broad and you know you're not quite sure in any given context what the author is saying that's not true with the greek language the greek language is is somebody said one time how many words in the english language i don't know sixty-five thousand. i'm making you know in the Greek language, is four times that. That's how precise the Greek language is. And God allowed, even after the Romans conquered the known world, God allowed that the Greek language was still the common tongue. It was still the, the, the common language throughout, spoken throughout the entire empire. And God wanted it that way because it was a precise language so that when the gospel, when doctrine, New Testament doctrine was proclaimed and preached and it was written down in the Greek, well, 
people would not be so prone to misunderstand what God was really saying. So guys, again, Greek was the most precise and descriptive of all ancient languages. And God ordained that it was the language of the first century, the language everybody understood, a universal language perfect, um, a universal language perfect for the quick spread of the gospel. Sometimes we read our Bibles and we're kind of ignorant about the background. It's good to sometimes really find out, well, what would, everything happens in a context. And it's important for us as Christians to not impose 20, uh, 21st century culture on a first century book, right? The New Testament. We tend to do that. We, we tend to impose what we think something is, and we don't understand the culture. And it robs us of a lot of the meaning, right? I mean, who's a shepherd here? Right? What do I know about sheep? Now, the average person goes, well, I know about sheep. They're kind of furry and or fluffy and, and sweet and so on. Yeah, that's all you need to know, right? Well, come to Cindy's study on Psalm 23, ladies. She's going to tell you what a shepherd says about sheep. David, right? Anyways, I'll leave that up to you. But it's important that we understand you know, the, the, the culture uh, in which God invaded to give us the most important book in the universe. Yeah, the Bible, but I'm thinking now of our New Testaments, which laid the groundwork for the church and for the evangelization of the world. So guys, in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son born of a virgin. Amazing. Let's stop there. We'll pick it up, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great grace. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you didn't just act on the spur of the moment. Hey, things look good. Let's do this. No, no, you had a plan. And that plan was, uh, was decided in eternity past. And, Lord, we thank you that you orchestrated this world in such a way that when Jesus came, it was the right time politically, it was the right time culturally, and we are sitting here today because people got touched 2,000 years ago and began to bring the message of the gospel uh, west and then across the Atlantic to our country, and we are sitting here tonight because you touched somebody centuries ago that touched somebody else, who touched somebody else, who preached the gospel to someone else, and finally here we are, our descendants were touched, and we are saved, rejoicing in your truth. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.